Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. The Bank of Canada has raised its key benchmark interest rate seven consecutive times in 2022 in its fight to tame inflation. Canada's key lending rate now sits at 4.25%, its highest in nearly 15 years. So as we look to the next market cycle, how can Canada boost growth and productivity? And how can investors protect themselves from what's to come? Joining us today to discuss Canada's path forward is economist Jack Mintz and analyst Philip Cross, speaking with host Pamela Ritchie. Jack Mintz is the President's Fellow of the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary and Distinguished Fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Philip Cross is the former Chief Economic Analyst at Statistics Canada and is currently a Senior Fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. A few key insights shared today include noting that we're finally going through some deleveraging, meaning that housing prices will most certainly be tempered in the big markets like Toronto and Vancouver, where prices went up extraordinarily high. Our guests also look at provincial budgets, noting that budgets have been balanced to a large extent, except for Ontario. Oil is also discussed today, with our guests sharing how the oil price is back to levels seen prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This podcast was recorded on December 13th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Jack, if you don't mind, I'll begin with you. I wouldn't mind you just kind of laying the foundation for us of where you think the demographic picture is for Canada at this point. Uh, we, we put that to a side throughout much of the pandemic, but it feels like it's pretty much right back at the forefront. Well, uh, what I've written actually once in the Financial Post uh, just a little while ago, Canada's uh, population is very quickly aging. Uh, in fact, in 2020, there was about one person over the age of 65 for every person that was between the employable ages of 15 to 64. That is, by 2035, that's going to increase to uh, two people for every five people. Uh, in other words, two over seniors to uh, five people that are working. And Canada is not the only one that's uh, rapidly aging. Uh, so is every high income country in the world. In fact, it's almost the same across all of them and many middle income uh, countries. In fact, when you look at uh, the world as a whole, it will be aging, uh, although not as dramatically as what's happening in high income and upper middle income countries. And of course, what all that means is that uh, we're going to be seeing labor uh, being tougher to hire and skilled labor internationally is going to be very competitive in terms of uh, the way that markets are going to operate. And of course, that will also mean that wages will rise and those countries that have uh, good productivity gains will be able to uh, basically offer uh, higher incomes for many people as long as we get the productivity gains to accompany those, those rising wages. Otherwise, they're going to have a tough time with competitiveness. 
Okay, very interesting. And that, that goes to sort of opening up the discussion of, of sort of the structural inflation discussion. And, and we'll come back to that several times, I think, in this conversation. Philip, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you to sort of point us to the inflation story, essentially, that spiked along with the energy story. They really were, were one and the same in the month of February of this year. This is, this is when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine and we saw that spike that, you know, was with us for much of the year. Just sort of take us back to the what that looked like, the impact that that had to the inflation story, maybe more short term. We can get into that. Well, it certainly had a major impact, particularly in Europe, which is still dealing with the extremely high level of natural gas prices and, and the same oil prices we're dealing with. But it really is more a question of it really seemed to have gotten the attention of a lot of the public and even central banks. It's when the Bank of Canada started, finally started raising interest rates was in March of this year, just after that invasion. But clearly inflation had been on an upward trend before that. I mean, we were looking at rates of four or five percent. Uh, I mean, I wrote a commentary in October 2021 warning that this was not going to be the, the supply side transitory supply shock that, that central banks were assuming, that all of that stimulus we injected in the economy during the pandemic from both fiscal and monetary policy was boosting the underlying rate of inflation. And I think we're seeing that today. The oil price, you know, when you go fill up at the pump today, it's it's basically back to pre-invasion levels. And yet, you know, we saw today in the U.S. inflation is it's running at 7.1% despite lower gas prices. So no matter what its origin, inflation is becoming increasingly embedded, embedded in our economy. And we see that in wage rates in both Canada and the U.S. They're very consistently at 5% these days. So I think uh, wringing inflation out of the system is going to be a lot more difficult than a lot of people are thinking. Jack, what what does it do? Tell us your view on sort of the interest rate trajectory. There there are lots of different pieces, obviously, that Tiff Macklin has to hold, our housing market being a huge part of that. But how long do we sit with high inflation, do you think? Well, I think it's going to be a bit longer than we think, uh, or at least the market might be anticipating. And the reason for that is the extraordinary extraordinary excess demand that has been for labor uh, in the in the market. I mean, when you look at Canada, for example, and the last time I looked at the numbers, which was just a month ago, you know, we had a million uh, job vacancies and at the same time, 1.1 million unemployed people. Now, there's always bound to be some unemployment due to uh, mismatching and structural issues. Uh, but uh, what it means is that it's going to take time in order for interest rates to work through the economy. It will bring down demand, uh, but we're not going to see a rise in unemployment for a while because People are still going to get hired, uh, and as a result, the economies will still be stronger than we anticipate, and, and inflation will still be supported through higher wage claims, uh, just as Phil mentioned. And so uh, I think we're looking at uh, 2023 with inflation probably in the 4 to 5% range, uh, maybe, and assuming no other supply shocks, which who knows comes <laughs> what comes down the road in 2023, but I, but I do think that... Uh, we're not going to get to two percent uh, until probably 2025. Interesting, Philip. Anything to to add there? Just sort of on on the outlook, where interest rates, but really inflation sit. Yeah, no, I'd agree with Jack that you know we're probably past peak, but uh, it's going to be very hard to get the underlying core rates of inflation down. I mean, we're seeing uh, you know drops in goods prices. We're we're definitely past peak in energy. Food prices should drop. We've had very good crops in North America. 
but the services is going to be uh, that's going to be a much more difficult component. Um, and the idea that you know we're going to solve you know we're dealing with the highest rate of inflation in four decades. The idea that we're going to deal with this with just a four percent four percentage point hike in interest rates and we can continue to run fiscal deficits and we'll just have a 10 or 15 percent drop in the stock market and then everything will go back to normal. I think is extremely unrealistic and, and overly optimistic. So, so let's 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 go to the fiscal story, Jack Mitz. Can I ask you to 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 step into this discussion? Because if you have the central banks all around the world, all of them are you know making decisions this week, this is a huge week, uh, also for data. But essentially, central banks trying to rein it in. Where is the place for fiscal? You can look at countries around the world. Like, there's an argument for this should be the end of fiscal spending. I mean, whether that's the case or not, that I don't know. Well, I do think that uh, governments are going to have to bring in fi- what's called fiscal consolidation by the IMF and, and other agencies, which is really uh, some form of austerity, uh, ultimately. What we've seen in the past year has been very robust revenues coming in, and that's been due to very high nominal uh, GDP growth, which is especially reflective of the very high inflation rate that we've had. Sorry, all levels of government in terms of revenue? Do you want to just spell that out? All levels. In fact, uh, the provinces have now basically balanced their budgets uh, to to a large extent, except in Ontario. Uh, And uh, we've also seen the federal government uh, deficit come come down uh, quite a bit as well. But that situation is going to change very quickly in the next two years. Uh, because what we're going to do is see a slowdown in the economy. Uh, we're also going to uh, see higher interest rates, which means higher debt charges. And just as a, as, a, as a point that no one has really made, I calculated what the increase in transfer payments are going to be under our index system for the, the federal government and the provinces follow. Are you about to uh, make news here? Do we know about this? Well, I, I did mention one article, but I did a calculation using the methodology that is is uh, has been used in the past in order to calculate what would be the increased indexation for uh, January 1st for payments and some of them come in later in July 1st but it's going to be nine over nine percent a little bit over nine percent which is huge and and so that's going to be a very significant boost in federal spending because there are many transfer payments that are indexed for inflation it also means that of course all the income tax brackets are going to be increased by nine percent as well Interesting. That's very interesting. Philip, you, you were at StatsCan. T- take us through some of the points you find interesting out of this discussion. Well, I agree with Jack that, you know, in the short term, inflation has been a benefit to government. We've gotten deficits down to less than 2% of GDP. They're likely to go up for the reasons Jack just enunciated. But it's also important, you know, we're very tied in with the U.S. economy. And there we're seeing deficits even before the slowdown of the economy and, and these other events we're seeing deficits of 5% of GDP. These are the levels at which Liz Truss in the UK was running her deficits when markets balked. So, you know, I think people underestimate how much stimulus is going into the US economy. That's going to have some impact here. And no, in, in economies that are running at above capacity, running deficits of this type are just going to make it that much more difficult to bring down inflation. Jack, how... Is the housing is the housing market reacting in all the I won't say correct ways, but you know it the textbook of how 
ultimately you take the steam out. There's a lot of discussions around the housing market right now and, and, and even sort of the potential for contagion. I, I might get your thoughts on that. You know, the Canadian housing market is it's held up of this incredible growth of the last 20 years. What does it mean to see the pin sort of pricking that in your mind? Well, I think in some ways it's healthy that finally the housing market is uh, going to be blowing off some steam, uh, steam in the sense that we've had a huge run up in prices, you know, even during the uh, 2008-9 recession, uh, Canada did not suffer that much in terms of the housing market. We were able to, you know, maintain fairly strong uh, housing market even at that time. And and we've just, uh, with low interest rates, of course, people have bid up the price of housing to extraordinary values recently. And so I think this uh, slowdown, uh, which has made actually Canada's housing market one of the fastest uh, rising prices, you know, rising markets in in the in the past uh, decade and a half uh, in in the world. I think only New Zealand and Australia match us. You know that we're finally going to be uh, going through some deleveraging, and and that's going to be uh, that's going to mean that housing prices will will certainly be tempered, and uh, especially in the in the big markets uh, like Toronto and Vancouver, where prices went up extraordinarily high, they'll they'll especially feel feel the heat. Uh, 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 as, we, as, as these cha uh, changes occur. Now, we also know that the only real investment that's gone up in Canada over the past, since 2015, has been in residential investment. We haven't done very well in non-residential investment. And so that means our investment picture is going to be uh, probably weakened to some degree, unless we make up for it in terms of more business investment in Canada, which has been rather weak uh, for the past seven years. So I think we need to, I think we're, we're going to see that uh, this will also have an impact on at least a macroeconomic impact and slowing down the economy uh, as well. So let, let's go to growth and, and discuss that. Philip, is there enough innovation in this country, do you think, to to bolster that? We're also going to bring the commodity discussion in, in just a second here. But, you know, do, do you see innovation across Canada, the growth story, productivity, growth? Where where does that stand for you? Well, I think everybody who looks at the data will say innovation and productivity in this country has just been abysmal. Uh, and it's been abysmal for decades now. And it's quite striking. We live next door to the most innovative, one of the most high productivity countries in the world, the United States. And yet, you know, we don't seem to be able to, to uh, match them when it comes to this innovation. And, you know, uh, economists have recommended a lot of specific things like free trade. It was just announced last week from Stack and we have the most educated labor force in the world. We do a lot of these things right, and yet it doesn't show up in the productivity numbers. This is what Don Drummond, one of your recent guests, called the, uh, the conundrum of Canadian economics. We adopt a lot of these policies that economists recommend, and yet we don't see a big payoff from them. And I suspect it's because of we don't have a, a good relationship between government and, and business. We don't encourage the kind of innovative business culture that the Americans do. And I think, uh, you know, we've got to work on that more and, and uh, less specifically on this policies like high immigration and, and so on. Okay. Yeah. Let's get into that in, in a second. Maybe maybe that's for you to take a look at, Jack. But what, what do you think on the innovation, the growth prospects for this country, productivity, boosting it somehow? I mean, what's the path for that? Well, uh, just, just to uh, kind of reiterate something that Philip said, but I think I'm going to say it a little bit more strongly. 
we've had uh, abysmal productivity, usually 1% per year uh, in terms of labor productivity growth for quite a while now, for several decades. But actually, since 2015, it's actually been uh, close to zero. <laughs> and so, in fact, just, you know, if you take out the 2020 year, it would be about half a point. So uh, we, we're actually even more abysmal <laughs> than we have been in the past. Now, when I look at the future, I'm, I'm actually quite concerned that it's going to, there's a lot of headwinds for productivity. Uh, you know, we're going into a world where we're looking at trade restrictions, uh, emphasis on domestic supply or friend shoring. Uh, all that means is more more tariffs, more barriers to, to trade, which we know can have an impact on, on productivity. We have the demographic aging problem, which is very rapid right now. That's also going to have an impact on, on productivity as, uh, as our senior people retire and we don't have enough young people coming up. And even if we bring in more immigrants, they're, they're not necessarily the kind of skills that you have at the beginning. It takes a very well, it takes a long time for them to, to really be, uh, move to a level that would be similar to other Canadians. They don't come in with the same skills as other Canadians currently have. And, and then we uh, also have indebtedness of governments, which we, we've already talked about, plus our low investment rates. So combining all that together, uh, it looks pretty bleak, actually, this decade. And on top of it, we have a very expensive energy transition where we're going to be substituting the most high, highest value-added per working hour industry, oil and gas, with uh, other industries that are going to be less uh, productive. And, and we have no concept of how expensive energy prices are going to rise during this time. So all that is pretty bleak. The only good thing that I think is the private sector has an amazing capacity for innovation. We've seen it with the pandemic, with vaccines, and the ability to work at home. And I think, I think what Canada needs to do is to uh, particularly focus on deregulation and, and, and getting its act together in terms of that. In fact, that's one area that we have not done a very good job over the past 20 years or 30 years has been to deregulate this economy and encourage more innovation. It's gone the other way, actually. What, what does that look like, Jack? I mean, what's that mean? So what, are, what is the policy prescription, even just broad strokes for deregulation to, to stimulate productivity and growth? Well, look how long it takes to, uh, to build something in this country. I mean, not just in the resource sector, but whether it's a condominium in a, in a downtown area or, or, or even a commercial warehouse. And in fact, the, the World Bank did a survey amongst all the countries just building a commercial warehouse. And Canada actually had one of the worst records amongst OECD countries in terms of the time taken to get a commercial warehouse built. I mean, that's really amazing. And so uh, we really have a long way to go in terms of uh, regulation, and a big part of it is governance, where uh, where people will object to uh, to various things, or municipalities want to have certain control over zoning, and uh, you know, and a whole bunch of other factors. But I think it's 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 an area that really needs a lot of work because we can throw all the tax incentives we want at businesses, but if we don't get the regulatory environment right, we won't be able to move ahead in terms of investment. What What is the role of the resources that Canada has in the ground going forward? We, we will discuss the energy transition. That's all probably part of the same story. For sure, it's part of the same story. But what is the role for, for commodities in Canada's growth picture? Well, as I've uh, written about just recently, you know, we have some mining resources, but I think there's also a lot more hype than there is realism. 
about what we can accomplish in terms of mining. As I as we pointed out in, in a paper just last week, using US data, that actually Canada really doesn't have huge reserves in a lot of the, uh, what you might call criti critical minerals that are available. Doesn't mean that we may not find some more, uh, but uh, we're talking about maybe two, 3% of uh, world reserves in, in areas like nickel and zinc uh, and uh, cobalt, which is really quite small. I mean, the countries that really have these critical min minerals are in Africa, Latin America, Australia, China, et cetera. And uh, that's where the minerals are going to be. And this is a good example is we have some great mining companies that can find a lot of those minerals abroad because there won't be as many as we think here in Canada. Philip, what, what would you add to that, the role of commodities broadly in Canada's growth picture going forward? I think it's symbolic of you know why we've fallen behind the U.S. I mean, the U.S. is exporting huge amounts of LNG and oil. They've become the world's largest exporter of fossil fuels, particularly Europe, as they replace Russian supplies. And yet, you know, we can't uh, agree to build any capacity here. At best, we ship our LNG to the U.S. at a low price, and then they export their LNG to Europe at a high price. To me, it's just symbolic of how Canadians just haven't created the proper environment, including regulations, for to develop our economy to its potential. Jack, this one is coming in. What are your thoughts on the prospects of stagflation in the Canadian economy? Are we seeing it now? I mean, what what do you think? We kind of started off well, with this. But. You know, I've, I've actually written in the past that actually, in a way, we were already in stagflation. We had rising inflation while at the same time, you know, even though the employment numbers were relatively good, we didn't really have, you know, we were really actually uh, in a, you know, in, a, in kind of a weakening uh, a situation in terms of our demand. But I, I, I think what we are going to see is, uh, is a period over the next two years of still inflation, uh, where, but rising unemployment, uh, as we finally soak up this excess demand for labor that's, that's sitting out there. Uh, and I think, we, you know, I think this is really the key difference between what we're facing now and what we've ever faced before, at least, uh, at least for some time since, uh, especially since uh, the 1970s. Philip, what what do you think? You've mentioned the U.S. doing things better in your pers in your way from your from your perspective. I mean, for investors, what do they need to think about if that's the case? What 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 do you think investors need to think about going forward? Well, I think obviously the U.S. is is a more promising area for investment uh, in the current political climate in Canada, but more broadly too. You know, we're looking at persistent inflation for longer than markets were expecting. That's what we've been talking about in this program. And that implies you want to invest in areas that profit from inflation, areas like commodities, also areas, um, industries that uh, benefit from the increasing spreads in interest rates, banks, life insurance companies, for example. Some of them have done quite well over the last year, even as the macroeconomic climate has deteriorated. And Jack, to you as well. So, so looking forward, what what does an investor want to keep either top of mind or, or certainly in the back of their mind as they move forward? Well, I think uh, first of all on energy markets, and which I'm quite familiar with, I think one of the things that we are still going to see is a drag on investment globally uh, for both oil and gas, and yet there's still going to be uh, remaining demand, very strong demand for oil and gas uh, worldwide, and so. I expect actually that prices will be relatively high for much of this decade. As I a like above 70? 
or high, like oh, yes, above no, 100. Even above 80. No, I wouldn't. I'm not. I'm not going to be predicting $150 barrels, but but I do see that uh, we're looking at you know the 80 to $100 range. I think for for oil continuing, and of course natural gas is going to also rise, and so those are going to be fairly good, I think, for investment. But at the same time, mining is also going to be fairly good. We're, we are going to be going into a mining boom, and and I think that's uh, I think that will also be good for Canada. Uh, any anything that's good for the resource sector will be good, and of course agriculture uh, could be fairly strong as well. So so we are I think on that side I think Canada looks pretty good. I think the real concern I have is manufacturing, where manufacturing has been you know slowly and declining in Canada over the years. But right now, I'm just not sure exactly what future we have, except for governments throwing money into subsidizing, you know, electric vehicles and, and things like that. But to me, that's not growing the manufacturing sector. That's just that's coming with a huge economic cost, uh, and because eventually somebody has to pay for all those subsidies. And so the question is, can we have a manufacturing sector that's going to be competitive uh, internationally and highly innovative? And I think. We have elements of that, but I think we have a long way to go with respect to a stronger manufacturing sector. What if you threw a carbon price in there and let the markets figure it out a little bit? Well, I'm a great fan of carbon pricing in the sense of uh, it's neutral and let people figure it out. You know, here we last night, uh, you know, there was an announcement about nuclear fusion where you can create more energy by uh, where they actually had some success in the United States creating more energy than putting in energy uh, in order to achieve nuclear fusion. If that takes off, you know, that, that could have a dramatic impact on energy markets uh, way in the future. Of course, we're far from that. And usually these things take several decades before they become commercial. But the main point is that we're, we're in a great deal of uncertainty, uh, when it comes to, uh, how these, uh, eventual innovations are, are going to be derived. And everyone says, okay, we're going to do hydrogen or we're going to do nuclear. We're going to do this. But it all depends on what's going to be competitive down the road. What's going to be the cheapest source of, and, and re of reliable energy? And, and that we'd have no clue yet. And as a result, I like carbon pricing from the point of view of being neutral in that we're not trying to pick the technologies. But, I'm, but we're not doing just carbon pricing in Canada. We're doing everything else. We are picking in, uh, uh, winners and losers. And, and I think that's going to come with a very high cost. And, and, and by the way, the U.S. is also doing that, which I think we may find that we're going to be throwing a lot of money into certain things that are just going to go bust. Right. Philip, a final sort of 30 seconds to you, just with a final thought, if you have one on, based on what Jack said or, or otherwise. Yeah, I'd agree that, you know, one of the problems with this country is that we confuse subsidies with being pro-business. Uh, we subsidize mining, we subsidize electric vehicles, and we somehow think this is this proves the credentials of government being pro-business. No, business should, uh, government should just be setting the rules and then allowing, uh, getting out of the way, basically, lowering taxes and letting business sort it out instead of picking winners, as Jack said. Jack Mintz and Philip Cross, I want to thank you both very much for joining us and, and, and leading this conversation for us to sort of think about what is next, what's on the horizon and, and what needs to be done. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. 
Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.